It's our practice to read the Word out loud together. Uh, it's a newer practice we've been doing just to focus our minds on what He says to us. So if you'll join me, three, two, one, go. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. There is nothing like your word. And Lord, we thank you that this book is like no other book. And so we pray as we open it, and Lord, we, we listen today, Father, to a particularly difficult passage. We pray that you would instruct us and encourage us. We pray that you would lift up our weary arms, and our downcast faces. And Lord, remind us of your power and your glory and your presence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just read from 1 Peter 5 about Satan, about demonic powers. And I know that this passage may be jarring for some of you. Uh, this is hard material, all this language about a real spiritual enemy who comes like a roaring lion who seeks to devour. Um, and you may be thinking, really? Uh, I didn't know I was in that kind of church this morning. And yep, uh, we are that kind of church, uh, the kind of church that takes all the parts of this book seriously. Um, even the ones that are hard for us, even the ones that don't square maybe with uh, what we would consider a modern view of the world. This is uh, challenging material. And yet, I want to ask you, if you would, if you're newer to our church or if this is hard for you, I want to just ask you to have an open mind this morning. Um, we live in a very scientific place and a very naturalistic, scientific viewpoint era in history where we view the world as the things that we see have cause and effect that we can explain. And, and so we're used to being able to look at things and say, surely there's a microscope somewhere or an electron microscope somewhere or a particle collider somewhere that can give answers to some of the deep kind of mysteries of the universe. And so we read a passage like this, and for modern people, it it's like, really? <laughs> really? Uh, we're going to talk this morning about the devil, about Satan. And it just doesn't square. And it's easy to have a little bit of a haughty attitude toward the Bible and say, we know better. And I just want to challenge you to think about that. There, there, you know, there are certain realities which are unseen and which just don't measure under a microscope. I mean, if you can imagine, how foolish it would it be for me this morning to be like, you know, are there any radio waves in this room? I'm waving my hand. I, I sure don't feel any radio waves. Do you guys feel any radio waves this morning? I don't think there are any radio waves in this room. Now, that's ridiculous because this, this instrument with five fingers attached to it is not appropriate for picking up radio waves. And in the same way, 
a scientific worldview, a naturalistic worldview, while there are gifts that come from that, they don't encompass all of spiritual reality. And so I want us to listen, to have um, an open mind, as, as Hamlet said to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your little philosophy. And I think that's true for us as well. So here's my outline, if you take notes. Uh, first point is devil or Tasmanian devil. Second is forewarned is forearmed. And the last one is S-E-S-V or me E-S-V. Okay, you'll, you'll figure that one out later on, okay? So don't worry, I'll explain. So um, now notice, I want you to notice from the get-go how Peter speaks of the devil. This is not, um, he doesn't speak of some kind of mysterious uh, kind of vague force here. He speaks of an enemy, a personal, intelligent enemy who is the opponent of God, God's purposes, and God's people in the world. He speaks of an enemy that is to be resisted, and yet he makes it clear, he makes it really clear to us, this is helpful for us, that this is not a universe with two equal and opposite adversaries. It's not yin yang. This is, this is God, who he says in verse 11, has all dominion and authority and power. Like, everything is under God's rule. And even as he talks about Satan here, I want you to understand from the very beginning, he's, he's not saying, hey, they're just these two equal and opposite forces in the universe. God is in charge of all things. God is in charge of all things. Now, this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Jesus talked about the devil more than anybody else. Jesus did. And he used uh, titles for, the, for Satan like the prince of demons, the ruler of this world. The New Testament uses other phrases like the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. Fifty-two times in the New Testament, he's referred to as Satan, which means adversary, opposer. Thirty, Thirty-five times he's called the devil, which means the accuser, the slanderer. Uh, while other titles include the evil one, we read here a roaring lion. We read about a great red dragon, uh, the ancient serpent. And so you put all these together, right? You, if you put all these pieces that you see in the Bible together, you get a picture of an intelligent, personal being who is evil, who is against the purposes of God, and leading against God's people a whole mass of spiritual forces against God and His purposes in this world. Now, C.S. Lewis famously said this in his screw tape letters. He said, you know, there are two errors that people make about the devil, two errors that people make all the time. One is being overly curious, and the other is to disbelieve in His existence. And I think we see both of those right now in our culture. Right now in our culture, you'll see um, that educated people do not believe in the demonic. You know, it doesn't show up under the microscope. I don't believe it. That's old, like, wives' tales. That's old um, kind of superstition. And yet, on the other hand, our media is filled with the supernatural. You know, just as the one part of our society is saying, that's not true, you get the whole media industry that's bringing us stranger things, right? And we have movies that are filled with zombies and with um, vampires and the occult. And interest in this right now is at an all-time high, which tells us something, which tells us there's something in us which knows there may be more to this than our scientific, naturalistic worldview. And yet, the outcome of this, of having like denial on the one hand and sort of these movies and images, is sort of to make Satan into a cartoon. 
And many non-believers fall into this category, but here's the thing. I think a lot of church people also fall into that category. A lot of Christians fall into that category too. So uh, there are, of course, um, some churches that see Satan behind every rock, tree, and bush, and, you know, like, he's always out to get me. He's responsible for all the things. The devil made me do that. Um, and there's an overemphasis on the satanic, which is not helpful. But on the other hand, there are a lot of Christians who don't recognize Satan or his power at all. And we're so quick to blame our roommates or our spouses or the government or your parents or, you know, all kinds of other institutions for the problems in the world and do not recognize that there is a real enemy of the people of God. As Kevin Spacey says in The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil has ever pulled is convincing the world he does not exist. Now, to show, I just want to demonstrate this functionally for you if you're a Christian. Because here's my contention. You don't think about this very much. I doubt we do. So you may be able to say, if I said, you know, uh, how much time do you spend thinking about the demonic, uh, thinking about Satan, about the devil, about the forces of darkness? Um, You might be like, well, I don't know. You know, like if I ask you, like, do you believe in that? A lot of you would say, yeah, you know, I I believe in that. Um, But it's a different question to ask when you say, how much time actually do you think about that? Do you pray against as Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, for protection from evil forces. How how much time do you actually think about, like, there are dark powers at work in this world? My, My contention is we don't think about this very much at all. Most Christians, I'm afraid, treat the devil like the Tasmanian devil. Okay, so let me explain this. You know what the Tas- a Tasmanian devil is? There is a real animal. We have a picture here. Uh, now give me the other one. Give me the other one first. There we go. Okay. Real animal in Australia, in, in Tasmania, uh, that has got big teeth, right, and like lives there. It's, it's a real thing. And, uh, but most of you probably know the, ta- the other Taz. Here we go. Right? That one from Looney Tunes. And and, you know, that's sort of how I think a lot of us think about the devil. Like, hey, it's, I, I believe there is a Tasmanian devil somewhere. Um, I know it exists somewhere in the world. I'm glad it has nothing to do with my life, especially with those large teeth, right? You know, I'm glad I don't ever, and, and I think a lot of us functionally, that's how we think about Satan, about the devil. It's like, out there somewhere, sure it exists, sort of, but doesn't touch my life. Very glad for that. Um, and here's the thing. It does matter. It matters whether you have that view or the Bible's view on Satan. See, in uh, 1 Peter 4.11, Peter tells us, do not be surprised at the fiery trial you are going through right now as if something, as if something surprising were happening to you. And I think that's a slogan. We read that last week, but that's a slogan sort of over the last part of this book. This book has all been all about human suffering, been all about suffering uh, and the causes of suffering. And, you know, um, it's not a surprise then that he turns here and says, there is a real enemy who causes much of the suffering in this world. Do not be surprised. Don't be surprised that there is an enemy who brings suffering. In in the very beginning of this book, he he called us to be sober-minded. And here at the end of the book, again, he calls us to be sober-minded because you have an enemy. Now, here's how we understand from Scripture how this enemy is at work in the world. We see um, that we have 
a, a spiritual adversary who accuses, who wants to discourage, to steal your joy, to disrupt your relationships. Um, it's not always about the devil, not under every rock and tree, not responsible for everything, but he's always there. So we read in first, uh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes about how Satan thwarted his work, got in the way of his work in uh, 2 Corinthians 2, about Satan sowing disruption within the church, about even Christians being pulled into schemes of the enemy like chess pieces that become pawns that he uses for his work to disrupt and to sow dissension. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Satan tempts believers by appealing to our sensual desires. And in Ephesians 6, he points out, Paul points out, there are Behind the events and actions and powers of this world, there are spiritual forces, dark spiritual forces that are at work. Can you see that? It's my question for you this morning. I mean, I do a little want to rattle you because I think that for most Christians, this is just not on the radar. And and I want to just ask, can you broaden your mind? Can you uh, see there is something greater in this world than just human dysfunction and bad parenting, right? There's something else. And this, that we live in a war zone, uh, just like Stranger Things. That's exactly what I'm trying to say, that you have an enemy and many of us don't even know it. We don't even know it. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 that about the devil, he says, we are not ignorant. We are not ignorant of his schemes. And sadly, I think that's not true for us. I think many of us are ignorant of his schemes. And, you know, the old phrasing that goes, hey, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. I want us to think and listen to what Peter tells us today about how the posture we take, the way that we prepare ourselves for for this fight, the way that we even do, like, understand what is happening around us. So Peter has a lot of encouragement in understanding his schemes. So let's listen to what he says. Now, Peter um, first talks about the goal. He speaks here of the devil in a way that I think is very instructive for us and about the Christian's posture toward that enemy in a way that's really helpful. Look at verse 9. Peter tells us, verse 9, resist the devil, not flee the devil, not defeat the devil, not even like what you'll hear sometimes in in prayer circles among Christians, hey, you're called to, to bind the forces of evil. No. All that's in view for us is resistance. It's a defensive position, and here's why. And I think y'all know this, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Here's why. Because we know, we've read the end of the book. We know how the story ends. The battle is already good as done, right? Satan, who was crippled in his powers at the cross and the resurrection, will ultimately be thrown down and destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ at His second coming. And we know this is how it turns out. This is the best Disney ending there ever was, right? Everything will be okay. Everything is going to be okay. So this is why we're given this language of resist. Like, it's not up to you to go like nine, nine rounds with Satan. You're not called to do that. You're not called to defeat the devil. You're not called to make it happen. Um, we're called to fix our eyes on the one who has defeated and will bring to an end all of Satan and his powers. And we're called to a defensive posture. And yet, in that defensive posture, this is what we see here from Peter, Peter calls us to three sort of pre-fight self-assessments, three 
pre-fight self-assessments. Three things. Be humble, be sober-minded, and be watchful. Now, this is so important. Each of these are us sort of checking ourselves before the fight. I want you to think about a boxer, right? Like, boxer, going to go into the ring, right? And needs to have like three checks before he goes in. One is a humble self-assessment of his abilities. Like, if if he's a lightweight, he's not going to go up against a welterweight or a heavyweight. He's like, I need to know my weight class. I need to know where I can fight, right? Humble self-assessment. Second thing, he needs to have his mind sober. Here, like, mind on the fight, not mind on taxes, my taxes while I go into the ring. Like, no, it's got to be, like, focused on the fight that's at hand. And then finally, checking his eyesight. You know, the biggest thing, one of the biggest um, weapons a boxer has is his eyesight, his ability to see something coming. And again, be watchful, be sober-minded, be humble. This is a pre-fight check. Now, most of you are not boxers. I, don't, I can't, in fact, I don't know of anybody in our congregation who boxes. But um, so let's translate this very directly to your experience. What are you called to do if you are going to have this pre-fight assessment? Well, one is this. Are, have, are you humbled before the Lord? In other words, do I know my own weaknesses? Every person in this room has areas where you are more susceptible to temptation than other people. Now, that doesn't mean that um, they're not different. They're very different. They're as different as the people are in this room. Some of you struggle with things that others of you will never, ever struggle with. Right? But all of us have weaknesses. All of us have places where we're really susceptible. Are you humble before the Lord to be honest about that? Second, am I sober-minded? That means, am I serious about my faith? Am I serious about my faith? Am I, am I aware that the Christian life is a hard life? It is, it is a hard walk. Am I thinking in light of this book? Do I take my thoughts about God and about myself and about the world from this book rather than what other people say? Right, right, am I taking that in? And then third, how's my sight? I mean, think about the boxer. Got to be able to see. Like, am I watchful? I'm told here that I have an enemy that's going to attack me. Am I looking for an attack? The enemy attacks when we're least prepared and most susceptible. Am I watchful? Am I paying attention? See, this is what every Christian is supposed to be doing all the time. Time out. Let me ask you this question. Why do we come to worship? Why, why do we pray and read the Bible? Why do we have fellowship with other Christians? See, a lot of people in the South think those are ways for earning God's favor. Those are earning points with God. Those are meriting something from God. God is like, in worship this week, check, right? Like not, and we know that's not true. We know from Scripture that Jesus Christ has done everything possible, everything required to make us right with God. There's nothing we can do to improve that. So what are we doing here? I'll tell you what we're doing here. Uh, when we come together on Sundays— This is like us coming to the gym to work out together. We're just like lifting weights. I'm like, yeah, what? reminding myself of what's true. I'm just working that out, right? And and when you open up God's Word, you're like reminding yourself. You're doing those push-ups. You're like, I'm working to get in fighting weight. All right, like every time you do those things, it's not because we're taking attendance and not because Jesus is taking attendance. It's because you need it. You need to remember what's true. You need to be equipped. You need to be strengthened for a fight. 
I need to be in shape. You need to be in fighting shape. Look, humble, sober-minded, watchful. Again, the question, do you, do you know that you have a real enemy? Not a Tasmanian double devil, like a real devil, a real one. Then finally, look at the fight here. Look at, uh, this is the fight that Peter prepares us for. Look at verse 8. He says this, Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that, that just sounds like, man, the devil is just going to come through the front door like the mind flare to just break down and just grab you, right? Okay. Nobody saw Stranger Things 3? Come on, I know y'all were binge watching Stranger Things thing, a lot of y'all. Okay, so the mind flare. Right? But, it, it, but it, look, if, if you have read scripture, if you have any experience as a Christian, you know this is not really actually how the devil works. It's not come through the front door, rip your throat out. It's much more subtle. Much more subtle. He traffics in deception, he traffics in lies. Satan doesn't attack us with a pitchfork. Uh, he comes alongside you with the same questions that you can read in Genesis chapter 3. The first man, the first woman, uh, l- listen to what he does. He comes alongside you and says, uh, distorting God's truth. You know, he came to the first man, the first woman, like, can you really not eat from any of these trees in the garden? Of course, that's not what God said, distorting the truth. Um, he, he, he comes and questions God's goodness. God's holding back. He's holding back on you. You know, um, has God really said? And then, and then he comes, uh, just like the first man, this woman, first woman, he gives false promises to you. Hey, if you do this, you're going to be like God. Now, in my life, that comes like things are going to work for you, right? Things are going to turn out for you. Uh, look, this is nothing new. I mean, Satan is doing very little more than replaying Genesis 3 in your life on loop, right, in all kinds of different circumstances with those same tactics of distorting the truth, making God's goodness look like badness, um, and giving false promises. So Peter is really helpful here in helping us understand the lies that are coming at us and how we deal with those. So if there are lies that Satan is coming at us with, what are they? I'm going to give you three. Satan whispers to us in our pain. Says things like this. I thought the Bible said that God's good and that God's all-powerful. It's both of those things. So if he's all-powerful, that means he, should be, he, can be take, he could be taking away your pain right now. He could be removing that from you. So he must not really care about you. He might... He might say that he does, but not really. Anybody, anybody had that one before? Oh, come on. Y'all, y'all this is a, this is a we, we, we do this together. Come on. All right. Anybody had that one before? Like, God can be taking this out, but he's not, not going to do it because he doesn't really care about you. Lie number two, listen to this. Satan whispers to us in our sufferings. What you're going through right now, it's unique. Uh, other people have problems, but not what you're feeling right now. The way you feel right now, you've been overlooked by God. Or here's the other version of that. Um, you're being punished. Must be that thing that you did. Must be what you did in, the, in your 20s. Must have been that bad relationship. Or how about this? Because of your secret. Man, Satan beats us up with our secrets. Or, or maybe it's because you're a bad mom. Maybe it's because you're a bad daughter, or a bad son, or a bad husband. Maybe it's because you're, you just, 
you know, you're never going to get it right. Anybody have that one? Come on. I want to see the hands. Come on. You know what's true. Um, number three, Satan whispers to us in a hardship. Things like this. Hey, this is going to go on forever. You know what you're experiencing right now? That's your new normal. Just, you better strap in. God has set you up to hurt, and it's never going away. Now, those are lies from the evil one. And, and what we need, and Peter gives us, is the Wonder Woman, like, you know, the like uh, bracelets of power, you know, like that. So, like, we're going to look at like three of those, right, that Peter gives us to counter those lies. So, look at this first, first lie. A God who is all-powerful but not caring about you. And Peter responds with verse 7. Look, look, look down. Read what it says there. What does he say in verse 7? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, that's a nice verse. In fact, that's a nice verse even just taken out of context. I saw that on the bathroom wall cross-stitched in somebody's house in our church. And uh, I can't remember who it is, but you had a nice bathroom. I remember that. Like... Uh, but this is not a cross-stitch verse. This is not a nice little verse. This is a, you know, this is a fighting Satan verse, okay? Um, because this is what I want you to know. This is, remember, Peter's letter here is about suffering. And this is very specific to demonic attack in the midst of suffering. Uh, one of the, who are we? We are people, you and I are people who are filled with fears and anxieties. Aren't we? I mean, we're filled with worry. We're filled with fear. And, and, you know, one of the most often repeated verses in the Bible is when angels come to people and they say, do not be afraid. Man, I need to hear that all the time. I mean, God doesn't come to us and say, hey, there's nothing to be afraid of. Sometimes we tell our children that and we know it's not quite true. There are lots of things in this world to be afraid of, aren't there? And yet, what my heart needs to hear from the Lord is, do not be afraid. And this is where this verse invites us. Look, look, look at what God's inviting you to do, right? Cast your anxieties on Him. You're filled with fears. Cast them on Him. He invites you to move toward Him in the midst of a demonic attack of Satan coming at you um, to devour you, cast your fear on him. And look, I know that is hard. I don't know about y'all, but like fears and anxieties, those most come at me around three or four o'clock in the morning, right? And it is so hard to go back to sleep. Like things look worse in the middle of the night than they do in the light of day. And there's something about those anxieties and fears. You can't just be like, go back to sleep, self. That doesn't work. And so one of the things I encourage you to do is to start keeping a journal. And it doesn't even have to be all that great, okay? Just a, a pad of paper that says, times when God answered my prayers, times when God met me. And you know what? Little things are even the best things. Like, even if it's like, you're like, all I have is like little things. I don't have like, God bought me a new house. No, you know, that's okay. Like writing down little things where you stick it by your bed and you remind yourself, God cares for me. I can cast my cares on him. These are the evidence of when he's shown up for me. See, that's how you handle that lie. Uh, number two, you are unique in your suffering. Remember that one? You're unique. You must have done something wrong. Again, Peter doesn't want you to be defenseless, so he gives us verse 9. Read with me. Read with me here. 
knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being endured by others all over the world. Man, that's good. Do you know why that's so good? There is an international brotherhood and sisterhood of people just like us this morning all over the world who are in our boat, who know what it's like to be you, who are also facing hardship and who are also being told like, hey, uh, you're unique or God's punishing you. Man, that's helpful for me. Man, that's helpful. This is an age-old tactic of the evil one to come at you with that kind of a lie. You know, one of my favorite of the Old Testament prophets is a guy named Elijah. And Elijah lived at a really dark time in the history of Israel where there was a king on the throne named Ahab and his wife named Jezebel, and they were promoting worship of other gods, Baal and Asherah, and they, they were promoting this, and they were killing the people of God, people that loved God, and, the, and especially those who spoke on God's behalf. They were systematically destroying them. And there's this big showdown, awesome event, and uh, where Elijah sort of squares off against the prophets of Baal and God sends lightning and like burns up the sacrifice and Ahab and Jezebel said, you're a dead man. And so Elijah runs for his life and he runs and runs and finally he's just like in the middle of the wilderness by himself and he's filled with self-pity and exhaustion. And this is what he believes. I'm the only one left. And God comes to him and says these words, there are yet 7,000 people who have not bent their knee to Baal. And what was he saying to him? You're not alone. What you're going through right now, there are 7,000 others. Such encouraging words. You know, this is just like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, right? What, what does Spider-Man from each dimension need to hear? You're not the only one. You're not alone. You're not the only one. Know what it's like. This is what you need to hear this morning, right? You're not the only ones. Peter, Peter is saying this to you. Like, this is how you fight the lies, right? Yes, I'm not being punished. The punishment, all the punishment of God was poured out on a cross on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all of it used up on him. And all that's left for me is God's fatherly embrace. Yes, he still disciplines his children, but he doesn't punish I'm not being punished for what I did in my 20s. Or I'm not being punished. I'm, this isn't like you're a bad mom day. It's not what God's up to. Right? You have an enemy who's coming at you. Fight. Third lie. This is going to go on forever. It's always going to be like this. And again, Peter has another counterterrorism weapon for you here. Verse 11, 10 and 11. Listen to what he says. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, why do you need to know that? Why, why do you need to know that? You need to know, and I need to know, that there is an expiration date to your suffering. The hardships in your life, the things you're going through, the enemy comes and says, forever. No, -uh, that's not right. There's an expiration date. This will be over. God is going to make all things right. right. This will pass. Now, look at the words here. That if you want, you, you need a verse to memorize this summer. You need to memorize this first. Look at verse 10. This is a monster promise to afflicted people. I, I could just sit in this one. He himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Can, can you hear this? 
Can I just tell, this, tell your heart this? Do you feel damaged this morning? Do you show up here feeling like, a, like damaged goods? Look, you will be restored. You're going to be made whole in parts of yourself that you didn't even know were broken. He himself will do it. Do you doubt? Man, are you filled with doubts? That's really common for people in the church. And this, look, listen to this. He himself, you will be confirmed. You will be confirmed. He himself will do it. Uh, do, you, do you feel weak this morning? I mean, just like it took everything to show up here this morning. Like I dragged myself. I do not want to be here. Do you feel weak? Listen, you will be made strong. And finally, do you, do you wonder, am I going to make it? I mean, you're one of those people who's like, I'm having a hard time imagining next week. Am I going to make it? You will be established. See, that is a monster promise from God. He himself will do it. Remember, um, the, who's t- telling us this? This is what kills me about this passage, right? <laughs> Look, think of who is telling us. If he, he was sitting down having coffee with you this morning, this is the Apostle Peter. This is the guy when Jesus said, hey, all of you are going to leave me. Peter's like, not me. Not going to do it. And <laughs> Jesus is like, tonight you will. <laughs> and Satan has asked if he could sift you like wheat. And you're going to struggle, but you're, I'm going I'm to restore you. Um, and when you do so, strengthen your brothers. Here's Peter. He's sitting down across from coffee with you, and he's saying, this is true, and guess what? If I can find God faithful in that place, a weakness and doubt and fear, you can too. God is that good for this. So, brothers and sisters, forewarned is forearmed. Fight. Like, be prepared. Get your mind your eyes. Get yourself ready. Arm yourself with the truth so that when the lies come, and you know they'll come, and they're going to come in the places where you're the most weak and the most susceptible, you need this word. You need this word. Now, finally, one last gift. Man, one last gift from this passage. Um, I want you to see one thing that's not obvious in your text and how you deal with a roaring lion. These commands about resisting the devil were not written to an individual. They were written to a group of people together. This is why I made a pitch earlier this summer. I want somebody to take the ESV, which is my favorite translation of the Bible, and upgrade to like SESV, Southern English Standard Version, because I want all the U's turned into y'alls. Because when you read the New Testament, in all the letters, almost all, do you know this? All the pronouns are y'all. They're not you. And we're people who already, as Americans, are hyper-individualistic. We read this as you and you and you and you and you, right? No, 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 no. This is y'all. We already, we come to this book as if this is the me ESV. It's all about me, right? It's all for you individually. No, no, no. This is for y'all. And here's, here's how that matters. Uh, listen to the, word, the phrases here again. Y'all cast your anxieties on him. Y'all resist the devil like the roaring lion. Y'all be watchful. Do you know that one of the greatest gifts that God has given you is y'all? That is one of the greatest gifts he's given you. And resisting the enemy is other people. See, 
Here's where I need to upgrade my former sermon illustration, where I'm talking about the boxer going in the ring, going to square off. You are never called to go nine rounds with Satan by yourself. You're not a boxer. You're part of an infantry. Like you're with a group of people who together as God's people are called to resist. You're fellow soldiers. How is this a help to you? You need people and I need people who will pray for us and who will pray with us. I need people and you need people who know what you're walking through and speak truth to it. Hey, that's a lie. That is not true. Who are coming alongside you. Man, I certainly do. Yeah, the Christian life was never meant to be golf. It was meant to be soccer. Like you're on a team. This isn't a solo sport. I need you to help me resist. You need to be able to like talk to someone and name the battleground and name the skirmish and name the struggle. The best gift God has given you is one another. And you know what drives me crazy as, a, as your pastor? Is everyone is so isolated in this church. I see this regularly. I don't, I don't want to overstate that. But we're not laying hold of this gift. There's a lot of loneliness and a lot of, I'm going to do this on my own. And a lot of, like, I, got, I guess I got this. You don't got this. You got brothers and sisters. And if you're not regularly calling up other people and saying, I need you today, right now, to help me resist, you're, you're stuck. You're in a rough spot. Because one of the greatest gifts that God has given you is y'all. S-E-S-V. You know, it was a sleepy December morning, Sunday. The alarm clock went off at 3.45 for privates George Elliott and Joseph Lockhart. They had awakened in their tent, their tent in the warmth of a Oahu night and gotten their radar fired up and scanning about 30 minutes later. Uh, half a dozen mobile unit, units consisting of like a generator truck and a monitoring truck and an antenna and a trailer, they were all scattered on the, the same side of the island. But uh, George and uh, Joseph's outpost was the furthest north. And their orders were basically just to keep the equipment from being vandalized. Their shift was from three to seven, and they were given one pistol, a forty-five, and a couple bullets, and just like, hey, just sit in the van and have the radar on and just sort of make sure nobody messes with the equipment. Uh, they had no idea why they were out there. Nobody told them. Uh, the two privates had been ordered out there for training, and George would recall, I mean, it was more like practice than anything else. Often with the coming of first light in the morning, they would look on the, the uh, radar and they would see Army and Navy planes taking off and landing. And that was about all they saw. Otherwise, it's a pretty boring assignment. And the local monthly in Hawaii had just proclaimed the state of Hawaii a world of happiness in an ocean of peace. So George and Joe had nothing interesting to do on that Sunday. They were waiting for the breakfast truck, actually, to come and bring them breakfast. And they were killing time. And actually, they were off duty. They got done at 7. And uh, George happened to be playing with the oscilloscope. And the oscilloscope was a pretty... Um, uh, uh, not a very developed modern piece of equipment. And, you know, all it could do is show you blips. And so he's looking in it and just sort of playing with it, and he sees this really big blip. And normally, like, see smaller ones, which represent, like, two or three planes coming in or out. 
this one's enormous. An enormous force is coming. And George starts to get confused. Like, what, is the equipment broken? Begins to investigate all the connections, look everything over, and he doesn't even know what to do. He's been given no orders for what to do with information if there was something coming in. He was so unprepared, the country was so unprepared for a war. So, what, of course, what I'm describing is December 7th, 1941, in Hawaii, the worst attack, the worst day in U.S. naval history, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor that basically destroyed the entire Pacific fleet and propelled the United States into World War II. And even though we knew there was an enemy, we were completely unprepared. We acted like, well, there's not danger. There's nothing going on. The great lesson, of course, from Pearl Harbor is simply this. When you confront a menacing opponent, you have to shed your own assumptions and think like him. And so I leave you with that this morning to ask this. Are you ready? Are you aware? Are you even prepared the fact that we are at war no matter what you see going on outside of you right now? Let me pray for us. Lord God, this is a message that is hard for us to hear. We may not want to hear, and um, it certainly messes with some of our categories. And yet, Lord, we pray, Father, for humility to have a right self-assessment about what's going on in us and what's going on in the world. We pray, Father, Lord, that you would bind us together with other brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, for a culture of encouragement and truth-speaking and praying to grow up in our church, that we would resist together because we know the outcome is sure. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.